Hi there, and a very warm welcome to Season 5, Episode 23 of People Soup. It's Ross McIntosh here. And it probably started much younger than that. Like when I, I work a lot with parents, children, families, I, I tend to work with the whole system. So those anxious adults in the workplace, their anxiety didn't suddenly start when they were in the workplace. We don't teach children to tolerate stress and frustration. We don't teach distress tolerance. And when we don't teach that young, the trajectory doesn't get better, it gets worse. So if we don't teach that early on, as a young person moves along their developmental trajectory and they move into teen years, adult years, that gets worse, not better. P-Supers, it is my honour to introduce you to Dr. Sarah Cassidy. What an absolute joy to speak to this pioneering, exceptional human. I was so captured by this conversation that I've decided to break it down into three parts. In part one, we get to know a bit more about Sarah, her geographical history, her extraordinary parents, a bit about her career path, including what it was like to co-own a bar in Chicago. We also start to explore her approach to the psychological well-being of children. People Soup is an award-winning podcast where we share evidence-based behavioural science in a way that's practical, accessible and fun to help you glow to work a bit more often. Let's just scoot over to the news desk because, in case you haven't heard, I've got big news. I'm delighted to announce that I'll be running an Act in the Workplace Train the Trainer course in April and May next year. It'll be over four sessions in partnership with Joe Oliver at Contextual Consulting. It's been a while in the planning and you'll find a link to all the details in the show notes. Also, it's a big news day, an update on the live summer series of People Soup podcast recordings. First up is Dr. Sarah Swan. We'll be chatting live on 19th of July and we'd love to see you there. We'll be launching Sarah's book, Coping with Breast Cancer, which is based upon her lived experience, her skill as a clinical psychologist and act. Tickets are free and you'll find a link in the show notes, so please do come and join us. Our second live guest will be Dr. Richard McKinnon, who'll be talking about loneliness at work. So come and join us and hear all about his research on how we can connect and thrive. And that's on the 28th of July. Free tickets via the links in the show notes, folks. And finally, reviews are in for our last episode, which was part two of my chat with Dr. Heather McKee and Bite-Sized Habits. Gillian on Instagram said, Love this conversation. So good to hear a female expert on solid, compassion-based behavioural theory related to habits. And of course, we all love hobnobs. Looking forward to Heather's book plan. Anne Parkinson on Facebook said, Absolutely loved listening to this. It was a brilliant podcast. I resonated with so much of what you both said. Heather has a wonderful way of explaining things. And I always love your explanations and insights too, Ross. So much reflected the way I work and live in a compassionate and values-aligned way. Well, thank you to Gillian, thank you to Anne, and thanks to everyone who listened, shared and rated part two of my chat with Heather. Your support is what makes the PeopleSoup community so special. So please do keep listening and sharing and letting me know what you think. It can get a bit lonely sometimes here in podcast land. So, for now, get a brew on and have a listen to part one of my chat with Sarah Cassidy. Dr. Sarah Cassidy, welcome to People Soup. 
Thank you so much for having me, Ross. I really appreciate it. I'm absolutely delighted you're here. And why was I so keen to have you as a guest? Well, firstly, your incredible pioneering work. Secondly, because my work is with adults in organizations and the number of times those adults come up to me and say, have you got this stuff available for kids? And I don't really have a coherent or that useful answer. Now I do. And finally, if we're equipping the children of today with these skills, it will serve the workforce of tomorrow really effectively. So welcome. You'll be used to the podcast that I have a research department. So I'm going to present back to you what they've discovered. So you can sit back and just reflect. But do be vigilant because sometimes they get things a bit wrong or sometimes they, they go off down sort of rabbit holes. So so just be aware. But I, th I think they've done a pretty good job. So Dr. Sarah Cassidy has been working as an educational child and adolescent psychologist in private practice in Ireland for the last 20 years. She specializes in the assessment and treatment of learning, emotional, behavioral, and neurodevelopmental difficulties in children and adolescents. Sarah is the founder and director at Smithsfield Clinic, Athboy County Meath. You notice the hesitation in my voice there, my pronunciations. Is Athboy correct? Athboy is correct, yes. And County Meath? Meath, yeah. It almost sounds like there's a D in there, but there isn't. But you did perfectly That's, well. Yeah. Thank you, because that... that, that Sounding like a D is, is kind of similar to some Spanish words. Mm -hmm. I got coached on that by a colleague from Dublin. Oh, you did very well. You did very well. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. And you're also the co-director of New England Centre for OCD and Anxiety, the Irish Midlands branch. That's right. So it says Sarah also lectures in psychology at Maynooth University in Ireland, where her specialist research areas include experimental and applied behavioural analysis, child and adolescent developmental psychology, counselling and educational psychology, and child and adolescent mental health. Sarah is a peer-reviewed ACT trainer and trains psychologists, behaviour analysts, educators, psychotherapists, mental health professionals and allied professionals in both professional and postgraduate settings throughout Ireland and abroad. I will ask at some point during our chat, a bit later on, how the hell do you fit all this in? <laughs> but we'll come back to that. Sarah is an author. She is currently writing several child and adolescent self-help for anxiety books in the Tired of Anxiety book series. And we're going to talk about the first one of those books a bit later on in this chat. She also currently has a children's act diary under contract and is manualizing her children's mental health program for clinical issues, which is called the Magpies program. She's a chartered member of the Psychological Society of Ireland and is now on their executive council. She's also a professional member of the American Psychological Association and has just recently completed a three-year term as the membership chairperson of the Association for Contextual Behavioral Science. Finally, she's a member of the Association for Child and Adolescent Mental Health, Ireland branch, and co-founder of a Maynooth University-based research spin-out campus company focused on increasing children's learning potential. And that's at raiseyouriq.com using relational frame theory. And we spoke to one of your colleagues in that area, Shane McLaughlin, about his research around the uh, raiseyouriq.com. Brilliant. So I'll link that episode back to this one. Cool. People are really interested in that. There's more. There's quite a, a richness of information about you, Sarah, out there. 
She is a popular invited guest at both parents and teachers events, as well as at scientific conferences. And she's well known for her ability to break down complex scientific principles into digestible bite-sized pieces. She has worked with children and families with a wide range of mental health difficulties, but her speciality is children and families and explaining how to do difficult things in simple ways such that even children can understand them. She's also the mother of three children, though it sometimes feels like 100 children. (laughs) Very true. (laughs) She has one husband and several pets. She has lived in lots of cool places, but loves rural Ireland, which is home, and she wishes there are a lot more hours in every day. All true. Have they done so far? They're actually very, very well. Yes, very well. Excellent. Well, now we move on to the more sketchy details. From <laughs> Hopefully they've not done too much research here. <laughs> well, they've gone onto the dark web. <laughs> Sugar. <laughs> but let me be clear, for me, the dark web means going onto the second page of a Google okay. search. <laughs> okay, good. So the more sketchy details. Whilst you now live in rural Ireland, they've uncovered that you've lived in Rome, mm-hmm. were intending to work in Peru after your psychology degree. Cor- yes, and, correct. And they think you bought a bar in Chicago with your brother. I did, yes. They found it difficult to track your location history, leading them to speculate <laughs> if you were a secret CIA agent. <laughs> I'll know. Kind of like Joanna Bourne. <laughs> I will not disclose. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And that's exactly what I expect you to say if you were Joanna Bourne. Yeah. And finally, they came across some rumours that you're in talks with RTE to be a regular co-host with Patrick Keelty on The Late Late Show. <laughs> now, I'm not sure if you're able to comment on that, Sarah. I can't comment. I can't. I was I was making a lot of jokes about that around around St. Patrick's Day that, um, yes, that I was going to be the next host of the the Late Late Show. But no, it is only a rumor. It is only a rumor. Well, you know what happens (laughs) when these rumors are put out there? (laughs) RTE might listen to this episode and go, hey, Mm -hmm. that's a good idea. There, there were a few fake photos floating around where we, 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 we photoshopped uh, myself and my very good pal, Dr. L. Kirsten, photoshopped a few pictures of myself on The Late Late Show uh, with a picture of my book and me sitting on the stage. I was actually a visitor on the show in the audience and we photoshopped a, a picture of my book and I snuck onto the stage uh, with a picture of my book. And I, I wasn't actually being interviewed or anything on the show, so... Mm. Well, you should be. Let's, let's just get that. Maybe that's a starting point for you becoming co-host, just to be interviewed about your book. Yeah. Well, I was just sneaking onto the stage. You know, was was just ah, was just well, a hoax. <laughs> as my mum used to say, "Shy bands getting out." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I suppose that's that's good wisdom. So, Sarah, I've introduced a little bit, just a little glimpse of your career, but I'd love it if you'd tell us a bit more about the evolution of your career, your geographical locations, some pivotal moments in, in your life and career, just to help us get to know you a bit. Well, um, yeah, geography is probably an interesting, an interesting point to start on. We moved an awful lot. And so, so my history, when people ask me where I'm from, uh, I often don't know how to answer that question because, you know, I'd often say, you know, do you mean more recently? Because we moved so much when I was a kid and, you know, I, I grew up in Ireland, but I was actually born in Chicago 
and my mother is is Irish. She grew up in Chicago. She's American, but you know, born born of two Irish immigrants, and so mm. she would have been back and forth to the states a fair bit. And her parents were very much Irish, and my father was an Irish immigrant. So they relocated to Ireland together, and I grew up in Ireland, but moved to Chicago then as a twelve year old. But we did a lot of moving around, and. That I think that's very difficult as a kid to not really know where you belong. Mm. And so I felt I always had to do a lot of weaving in and out of different groups, of different groups of people. And I think I probably became a studier of people as a very young kid because I probably had to figure out from very early on what I needed to do to belong or what I needed to do to fit in or to understand, you know, what's the culture in this group or what's the culture in this classroom. And that worked really, really well for me. And, you know, I, I think I became a studier of people long before I was a psychologist. In fact, I was, I was probably a psychologist before I knew what the word psychologist meant uh, or long before I'd ever heard the word psychologist. My mother was also an academic long before her time. And I would have been glued to my mother's hip for a lot of years. My mother brought me to lecture halls. She got married when she was 19. And so I was in the lecture halls of Maynooth with my mother, uh, taking notes for her because, you know, we didn't have a childminder. So I was sitting in the lecture halls with her um, from the age of maybe seven years old. And she used to say, take notes for me. Of course, I think she was just trying to keep me busy, but I, I took the job very seriously. And... Um, took notes for her. So people often think that my first years in Maynooth were when I was doing my PhD, but actually my first years in Maynooth were, were taking notes for my mother while she did her, while she did her studies. She went back to school after having her five children. So she was doing a, a degree in sociology and, and um, philosophy. So yeah, so, so my history is moving around a lot. And I did my undergraduate degree in psychology in Chicago and um, then came back, moved back to Ireland. I was initially going to go to Peru. You mentioned that because at the time I was living in Chicago and it was very, very expensive to do a PhD in Chicago. And I, I didn't I actually didn't really have the money to do a PhD. And I wasn't 100% sure what way I was going to do this. And... I had been accepted to the Jesuit Volunteer Corps in the States, and I'd been accepted to a placement in, it was in Peru. It was like, a, like an international volunteer corps, if you want to call it that. And so the placement I was going to go was in Peru, but I had just come back from living in Rome on Erasmus year, and my granny was very ill. I was named after my granny, and she said to me, don't go. I had just been away for a year traveling around and studying and finishing my psychology degree. And I had this giant, giant backpack filled with all the things I owned and all the things I thought I, I needed. I, I actually never opened that backpack again. It's probably still under my mother's dining room table in Chicago. <laughs> and uh, so my granny said, don't go. Um, and she had deteriorated significantly in the year that I've been gone. And so I didn't go to Peru. And instead, I, and I never went to the, the volunteer corps in Peru. I, I was always kind of sorry I didn't go. But instead, I, I bought a pub with my brother in Chicago. 
and we had a great time. I learned a lot about human behavior then and, uh, you know, fell in love, got pregnant, <laughs> um, moved back to Ireland and um, had a rather uh, tumultuous uh, love affair with the father of my first child. We We did not last, that relationship didn't last, so... I moved back to Ireland with him and I wound up um, going back and doing a PhD and working in the ed psych system in Ireland. And, you know, there's a, there's a, another whole story there, but I went back and did a, did a PhD then. Mm. And there's a long, there's probably 40 episodes in, in, in all that story, but. Well, maybe we're thinking of a, a spin-off series. Here, so. <laughs> the life and times, like, yeah. But I, what Sarah did next? What's yeah. <laughs> well? I actually studied addiction for a while because I, I did mm. have, um, you know, there, there probably are a lot of side stories there that led me into studying addiction for a, a brief period of time. I had been studying troubled teens, and I had always been interested, obviously, in psychology and um, working with troubled teens and working with, with challenging behaviors. You know, my own dad had had a really, really difficult upbringing. My own father was the 13th of 14 children, and he would have grown up under extraordinarily difficult circumstances. Like when, when I look back on my dad's life, what always really strikes me, actually, my, my dad is an extraordinary man, an absolutely extraordinary man. And um, my dad would, would, would be your, your kind of stereotypical walk to school, three miles uphill both ways. You know, I had no shoes on my feet, but like my dad literally had no shoes on his feet and, you know, had no food on the table. And like, it's a miracle that the man survived. But actually what's, what's really miraculous to me is when my father talks about his childhood, um, like he tells stories with laughter and with fun and with curiosity. And he would have really taught us from very early on how important it is to work hard and how important it is to persist and the importance of curiosity and the importance of looking under the bonnet. And if somebody is having a difficult time, not to judge them. And like, you don't know what it's like in their home and you don't know how hard it might've been for them. And that would have really been instilled in us nearly from the day we were born. Like you don't know what's happening. And I think in some ways that might've been a thing that would have led me to maybe living with somebody that, didn't treat me with respect, you know, because I would have said, oh, well, you don't know what what it was like for them growing up. And hmm. that might have been what led me to live with somebody that um, struggled with addiction themselves. So for a time when I was living with somebody that wasn't treating me with respect, I probably would have lived with them for a lot longer than you would think, you know, a, a woman who was educated and intelligent and has a degree in psychology and has, you know, owned her own business and has always been, you know, an academic and an intellectual. But actually, you know, if you've, if you've grown up in a home where your parents are always telling you, you should give people another chance and you should try to understand what's going on for somebody, sometimes those things happen together. But um, at that time, I would have said, actually, I need to understand what's happening here. And so for a time, I thought, maybe I'll study addiction and maybe I will try to understand what was happening for this person. And so for a time I did study addiction, I thought I might go down that road, uh, but I didn't. <laughs> uh, I, I wound up working in the ed psych system and um, trying to understand what was happening for children and adolescents. And I was very frustrated with the ed psych system in Ireland. Things that were not really being done, I feel the way they should have been 
being done. We do a lot of assessment and we don't do a lot of treatment. So we've got a, a real lack of intervention and it's kind of assessment, 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 but there's no, there's no real intervention or there's, there's no real kind of um, fruitful intervention. And uh, so that led me to do my PhD and we came up with some, some excellent interventions. I'm still doing a lot of that research with Maynooth and with colleagues in the States. I mentioned Dr. Brian Roach, but also Dr. Al Kirsten in New York and colleagues in the UK, Ian Tyndall and, and, and Shane McLaughlin is still doing that work and some colleagues in Ghent as well, um, Jamie Cummins. So there's a lot of that work being done, but, but also in that therapy space, the mental health stuff. And I lecture um, in Maynooth and in, in a lot of other places. And you mentioned, of course, my, my private practices. I, I work with kids and I see these kids an hour a week. And like you mentioned, the intro, by the way, thank you for the beautiful intro. I've been lucky to have these amazing parents that, um, you know, I got out of a very difficult situation interpersonally and went back to college and you know went back and did my PhD and continued my studies and continued my research and continue to do all all this other work that I've kind of had the privilege to have had great teachers and ha- have had access to all this education and privilege but um, when people come to me in, in my clinics and in lecture halls they have access to that and, and you know they they have privilege or they have people around them or adults, you know, you mentioned that, that you work with a lot of adults, but they have adults around them that are able and knowledgeable or have access to money or resources that can bring them to somebody like me or like you and can say, you need this, you know, Mm -hmm. you need to know how to do this thing. Not everybody has that. And rates of mental health distress are really high. They're really high. And there are kids, let's say, for example, like my father growing up as a kid, he didn't have the likes of me or you in the background or the likes of, you know, my mother that was bringing a kid to a lecture hall and saying, hey, look, education is important. Look how important it is. And so when I was looking at writing books that myself and Lisa Coyne are writing, I was thinking about all these kids that don't have access and that maybe will never make it to a private clinic or, you know, cannot understand a scientific principle. And there's so much out there in the world that's so incredibly difficult. And yeah, I'm, I'm going on a mad tangent here, Ross, but um, it, it's just that there, there's so much, to me, there's so much out there that's that's so in, incredibly difficult and Sometimes I suppose I feel the weight of that, like that, um, you know, how do we bring that to kids that are, are in these incredibly difficult circumstances? Yeah. And when, when we look at the data from adults in the workplace, yeah, some of the data from, from Paul Flaxman's research is mm-hmm. that 40 to 50% of adults in the workplace are experiencing borderline clinical levels of psychological distress. Yeah. That blows my mind. Yeah. And it also makes me get up every morning yeah. Yeah. with with some really strong purpose. Yeah. But if they are the parents of children and they're noticing their kids are anxious and they're dealing with their own anxiety and distress, it probably leads them to perhaps sort of berate themselves even more, punish themselves even more for saying, I'm a bad parent because my child is anxious. And yeah. where's the support? I absolutely agree. It's... Yeah. 
it's a crisis and I don't think it's being recognized as a crisis. It, you're, I think you're 100% right. And then the other really important point that I think sits in underneath what you're saying is that that's multi-layered. So where did it start? Like none of that is a separate system to me. So like those, those parents or those adults that you're talking about, their anxiety didn't start when they were adults. And, and it probably started much younger than that. Like when I, I work a lot with parents, children, families, like I tend to work with the whole system. Hmm. So those anxious adults in the workplace, their anxiety didn't suddenly start when they were in the workplace. We don't teach children to tolerate stress and frustration. We don't teach distress tolerance. And when we don't teach that young, the trajectory doesn't get better, it gets worse. So if we don't teach that early on, as a young person moves along their developmental trajectory and they move into teen years, adult years, that gets worse, not better. P-Supers, what we've just had there is Sarah just doing exactly what you're well known for doing is breaking down the, the complex to a digestible concept and realizing the layers there in, in the whole system. So thank you for that. It's, it's a joy to hear you describe it that way. It's alarming, but it, it's a joy. And yeah, I, I, I'm not sure where I'm going now. <laughs> God, how big is your mug? <laughs> it's enormous. <laughs> it just suddenly that loomed up. <laughs> I need a lot of coffee. <laughs> I thought there was some sort of spaceship landing or something. <laughs> um, let me try and get get my head back in the game. Sorry, um, sorry. It's superb to hear you talk about your parents and what you've learned from them and how generous they were in giving you freedom and being amazing role models for you. How were you as a, a child and an adolescent? Actually, I was a very difficult child. Uh, an incredibly difficult child. My parents wouldn't tell it like that, but I remember. <laughs> and uh, my my mother has rose-colored glasses permanently affixed to her face, and I, I want those rose-colored glasses <laughs> for my. <laughs> but it's 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 really interesting because I'm not sure I appreciated my parents. I know I didn't appreciate my parents. Uh, I, I know I didn't when I was younger. I'm hopeful that my own children will appreciate me more <laughs> as they get older because I, I, I really know with all my heart how much I appreciate my parents now. But yeah, they were extraordinary. They are extraordinary human beings many, many, many years before their time because my dad would have grown up in a, under very, very difficult circumstances and he never ceases to amaze me, like all the things that he went through and, you know, almost escaped unscathed and, and managed to be the kind of a man that would have brought us along with him to work and would have, you know, taught us a lot of really, really valuable life's lessons and taught us the value of hard work and taught us the value of kindness and compassion. Um, even though, I mean, his mother would have been an amazing human being and, and a kind and generous person, but he literally grew up hungry and poor and it's amazing how he, he managed to come through all that. 
And my mom was, again, would have just taught us really amazing things, um, teaching us kind of like philosophy. And, uh, you know, I read long before I went to school and um, was encouraging us to travel and to read. And um, I knew about feminism and philosophy and Eastern religions. <laughs> it was mad the things we knew um, that weren't on the radar for other people. So yeah, no, we, we really were shaped into some pretty marvelous human beings. Um, mm. But, um, and, and I think we were very, very lucky, but, but we didn't know it. You know, I don't think we knew it. Um, but I, I also think kind of moving around a lot was a blessing and a curse. I never really knew what home was. And that's definitely been a blessing and a curse for me. There's been probably a, a strong sense of that in my, in my work too. The concept of home is a, is a, an interesting one for me and the concept of safety. And I think establishing that psychologically for the children and adolescents and, and adults that I work with, that's, that's a really important one. And I think it's an important one where anxiety is concerned is trying to understand that. And, and it's absent for a lot of people that experience anxiety. It's, it's understanding that concept, that concept of safety mm -hmm. and home. Yeah. I'm really interested to hear you describe how you moved around a lot and how that kind of made you always an, an other, someone who had to mm -hmm. develop new relationships into different systems or different cultures. Yeah. And that's, it feels like that's when you're, you started to hone your noticing skills, yeah. your observational skills, and then completely different context, but a bar in Chicago, yeah. learning about human behavior in, in that environment. Yeah. Gives you a, a thorough grounding, I would imagine. Yeah, that was an interesting, yeah, I mean, hilarious good time, but <laughs> but uh, like it was incredibly hard work. And um, I was also like, I mean, I would have also always been quite a hypervigilant person myself. And that was probably to my detriment in other ways, because I never really let myself relax. And, um, you know, in working with a lot of anxious people, I really understand anxious people because I've always probably been an anxious person, although I didn't name it. You know, I, I wasn't always like I, I, I never named myself as an anxious person. I, I wasn't aware things that I called hard work or perfectionism. I, I always considered those skills. I, I didn't realize actually that, you know, they, they might have been things that, that harmed me in other ways. But yeah, I mean, working in the bar in Chicago was, um, I only realized that some of the things that I was doing in the bar in Chicago were problematic when I was pregnant with my first child, Patrick, because I all of a sudden realized like, actually, this kind of a lifestyle that I'm leading, like, you know, staying up all night to make sure the pub is ready for the next morning, like, I'm not going to be able to work these kind of hours whilst breastfeeding a newborn baby. Like this, this is not healthy. This, this kind of a life is, is not going to be healthy for also managing the needs of, of a small baby. The actual managing of a pub and the needs of so many different people and customers and watching, there are a lot of rules too in running a pub in Chicago where um, if somebody has too much to drink, you're not allowed to actually let them over the threshold of the pub because then you're legally responsible for them. So you're constantly watching and wow. yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, and I mean, you really have to, because if you lose your, if you lose your um, alcohol license, you can never own another pub in, in the city. 
And they're actually a lot more responsible in some ways around that in uh, in the city of Chicago anyway. So there was a lot of really interesting things there too. But you're constantly hypervigilant. So if you want to talk about anxiety, um, there's a, a huge amount there. And you never know when an inspector is going to come in. And um, the checking of IDs is a constant thing. So if somebody even looks under the age of 30, you have to check their ID. And you can't overserve somebody. And you have to check the ID of every single person in the party. There's a, there's a ton of different things going on there. Good Lord. I mean, I just can't even contemplate that as as <laughs> someone who is who's quite an anxious person. <laughs> I know. Yeah. And I'd be vigilant. I'd just be exhausted. It was exhausting. Wow. Yeah, it was exhausting. Yeah. And, yeah. That's it. Part one of three in the bag. Thanks so much to Sarah for being so open and generous in all that she shared. And for being a right hoot too. Thanks also to my producer, Emma. You heard me, P-Supers. I've only gone and got myself a producer. Emma is a recent psychology graduate, full of ideas and highly skilled on the post-production desk. You'll be hearing more from Emma as we go along. We love to get your reviews and you can send them on the socials or even on WhatsApp. We're that modern here. All the details are in the show notes. If you like this episode of the podcast, please could you do three things. Number one, share it with one other person. Number two, subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review, whatever platform you're on, and particularly if you're on Apple Podcasts. The Apple charts are really important in the podcast industry. And number three, share the heck out of it on the socials. This will all help us reach more people with stuff that could be useful. I love to hear from you, and you can get in touch at peoplesoup.pod at gmail.com. On Twitter, we are at peoplesouppod. On Instagram, at people.soup. And on Facebook, we are at People Soup Pod. Thanks to Andy Glenn for his spoon magic and Alex Engelberg for his vocals. Most of all, dear listener, thanks to you. Look after yourselves, peace supers, and bye for now. I'm not sure where I'm going now. <laughs> God, how big is your mug? <laughs> it's enormous. <laughs> it just suddenly like, loomed up. <laughs> I need a lot of coffee. <laughs> I thought there was some sort of spaceship landing or something. <laughs> um.